Hello, I'm Kevin Richard. We have had a lot of news breaking in the school choice arena just in the past couple of weeks. On Tuesday, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on state funding for religious-based schools, and basically what the uh, Supreme Court ruled was that states cannot restrict funding for religious-based schools simply because they are religious by nature. The Biden administration continues to push for a series of rules that would restrict federal funding for charter school startups. And closer to home, the State Board of Education took the unusual step of closing a charter school, a virtual charter school. It is only the second time in state history that Idaho has stepped in and closed a charter. To put all of this news into perspective, I sat down via Zoom this week with Terry Ryan. He is the CEO of Bloom, a nonprofit that works with charter partners across the state. He was in Washington, D.C. this week lobbying about those uh, federal rules regarding startup grants. By way of disclosure, Bloom receives its funding through the J.A. and Catherine Albertson Family Foundation, as does Idaho Education News. Here's my conversation with Ryan. Well, Terry, thank you for joining us from afar for the podcast this week, and we'll get to where you are and why you're there. But I wanted to start with uh, the news out of the Supreme Court on Tuesday, the, uh, the ruling from the Supreme Court, which essentially and directly addresses a voucher program in Maine regarding religious schools. But I, I've got to ask you, are there broader implications in this ruling uh, regarding the school's choice space? Well, I, a lot of smart people believe there are. There are. Uh, and I think it has potential ramifications for what's happening in Idaho. Idaho has been one of the strongest Blaine Amendment states in the country going back over 100 years ago now, I believe. And so this ruling was the third in recent years that basically says that prohibitions on public dollars following students to religious schools just don't fly. They don't pass constitutional muster. It's a First Amendment issue. Um, that's as far as I can go. Kevin. I'm not a lawyer. Right. Uh, and it's but it is a continuation a- off of Espinoza from two years ago. That's correct. That's right. And this one was even a stronger opinion, as I understand. I actually read it. And I've spoken to some people who are pretty smart about these things. Uh, Idaho has has made it clear over many decades that um, public dollars should not follow students to religious um, K-12 schools. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's in Idaho's constitution. What is pretty clear now is that Idaho's constitution is actually in violation of what the Supreme Court has ruled. Right, the, the Supreme so Court's interpretation suspect, of the U.S. Constitution. That's right. Somebody's going to challenge I suspect there'll be um, a school in Idaho that's going to say, hey, why aren't we able to, to get these resources? Um, the state would have to come up with an education savings account program or a voucher program, but um, this is going to be an issue in Idaho in the next few years and other states that uh, haven't already moved in this direction. There are a lot of states, Kevin, you know this, Arizona, Indiana, go down the list, Ohio, um, that have robust private um, scholarship programs that might target students with special needs or it might target students um, with dyslexia. There's a number of different programs out there. Florida, um, this is becoming more and more part of the educational, I would argue the public educational landscape because these are public dollars 
that follow students um, to the schools that their families choose for them. Uh, there just aren't prohibitions on that money following them to a, a religious school like a Catholic school. Mm-hmm. Does this ruling open the door to religious-based charter schools in Idaho? And, and should it? Should we go down that road? I don't think it necessarily opens the door for religious um, charter schools because charter schools have other kind of entanglements with the state um, through their performance certificate with um, the authorizers. So it's not an easy uh, it's not an easy transition to having um, religious charter schools. Uh, there would have to be a lot that would happen, not just um, with state law, but also with just the procedures and policies of like the state authorizer, but also things like we might talk about later, the federal grant, mm-hmm. um, and which would probably, you know, I, I suspect it'd be, it'd be a battle on many fronts as, as how I would describe it. Should there be religious charter schools? Um, I haven't given much thought to that. Honestly, because this is this issue's popped up only in the last couple of months as like a real possibility. Now, the more I, I've, the older I've gotten, the more I've appreciated that um, religion in people's lives is not necessarily a bad thing, especially uh, as you see people that you love passing on and those sorts of things. Um, I think that's that's a it'd be a good debate. Um, for our state to have, and I suspect probably we'll have it. No one has come to me and said, hey, I'm interested in doing a religious charter school in Idaho. Mm-hmm. So there's not, there are not religious-based charter schools waiting in the wings or you know, organizers waiting I in their wings. I mean, none that have, um, that have come and said, you know, charter schools, because it, as a religious school, I, let me be honest with you, knowing a lot about public charter schools, there's a lot of rules associated with public charter schools beyond just whether or not you can teach religion. I mean, accountability standards, um, that you have to take the state assessments, though that data is reported, um, how you spend your money and how you report that money. It's uh, the charter schools are not um, private schools in that regard. They're fairly highly regulated in our state and in most states for that matter. Um, so I would think that the religious schools would want to stay more in the private realm than move, you know, more towards being um, public type schools, don't you think? I guess we'll see. But you you talked about rules and regulations, and that and that does does dovetail into why you are uh, speaking to us from afar here via the the miracle of Zoom. You're in Washington D.C. this week, and I'm I'm sure you're talking to folks about the uh, the recent round of proposed charter school startup grant rules from the Biden administration. You've been critical of those rules. What's the latest on the status there? So we yesterday heard from um, members of the uh, U.S. Department of Education, the administration. Their point is these really aren't their argument, I should say, is that these rules are not um, really that difficult to implement for 
uh, groups, be it the state departments of education or in our case, a nonprofit that's serving as the as the grant uh, entity from right. the perspective mm-hmm. of the U.S. Department of Education, that these rules aren't really that onerous and they're not and they're 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 smart, commonsensical. Um, well, as you read them and uh, you hear from folks, again, smarter than myself, from um, Republican uh, uh, lawmakers as well as Democratic lawmakers that are opposing these rules, uh, basically saying these are additional burdens that simply aren't necessary. Uh, and one example that was given um, yesterday is the community impact analysis, mm-hmm. um, which would require charters to uh, maintain diverse student and staff populations. And there's no definition of even what diverse is in the proposed rules. And this starts to get really strange in a place like Idaho, where you have charter schools, Forge is an example in Middleton, that has students coming from six, seven different school districts. So I'm not sure if you'd have to do a community analysis for all six or seven school districts Mm -hmm. um, or how you there's just a lot. Once you start thinking about it and untangling it, you realize the work and responsibility and costs that would go into this. For organizations that are applying for um, authorizing uh, or grant status, uh, as well as the entity that's that's managing the overall federal grant, which in our case is us, um, as I listen to these conversations and learn um, what's actually being proposed, I can tell you that Bloom, which has managed the, the state's $22 million CSP grant, um, and we've done it, 3% of the grant you're able to get for administrative costs, administering the grant is, is double that currently. Uh, and so if you added these additional burdens, you'd be driving up the cost of administering the grant, not only for Bloom, but I would argue more importantly for the individual schools themselves. Um, and so that's that's why we oppose this. It's just in it's like, what's the problem we're trying to fix here? Um, in the case of Idaho, uh, we have um, 24 schools that have received um, this grant support. The money's gotten out the door. We've been audited. Um, we've been audited um, actually by the U.S. Department of Education, and they've approved of what we've done um, and, and see it as being done well. Uh, so it's just, you know, Idaho is a low funded state to begin with. And so to be adding additional regulatory burdens and costs on these dollars, um, you know, we argue just doesn't make sense. And you've been using this money for several years to start up charter schools around the state under the under the old round of rules. Specifically, are are there examples of where these new rules would have made it difficult to start up those uh, schools that you have had the chance to start? So the community impact analysis mm-hmm. is one the um having to have evidence of a balanced um and diverse student population we've done a pretty good job of trying to do that under the current rules we try to be plus or negative five percent with the student population 
So if the if the school is in Middleton, um, it should represent plus or five um, plus, or minus, plus or minus five percent of the overall population, community population. Right? Now we've done that because we felt like it's the right thing to do. The current rules encourage that. It doesn't mandate it. It encourages it. Um, but these rules would thing. require it. This would require, it. and in addition to not only the students but also the staff. This is where it gets tough, Kevin, when you're, you know, as difficult as it is to find teachers and to get, um, I think, state of Idaho's 900 teachers short in the traditional public school sector. Um, you know, the charters as a percentage are probably about the same. I know in talking to our schools, um, it's difficult. So now you've got to look for not only the best teacher that you can get, you also then have to say, and we got to make sure that, you know, up to whatever the number may be, we have to do all the calculations and say 10% of, of the teachers must also be pick your diversity metric. It's not defined. Um, that just creates more cost, more challenges. Uh, and it's not a, a recommendation. Um, it's a mandate in uh how you um utilize the the money um it must be based on these criteria um so those are hard those are those are hard challenges and costly challenges to tackle um philosophically you know i you think you know this i mean we supported a weighted student lottery and caught a lot of grief from um the idaho freedom foundation uh, because we thought schools that want to really work at ensuring they have a diverse student population have some tools to do that. So it's not philosophically like I've got a problem with trying to ensure that the public charter schools really are doing all they can to serve all students and to do it well. Uh, but when you start mandating that into these federal grant dollars um, and risk cutting it off if for some reason you're not mm -hmm. able to meet it, uh, that's that's a bridge too far for the work that we're doing. Do you see any change in the rules at this point, or is it uh, an impasse? I think, from, uh, listen, I'm repeating to you what I heard from mm -hmm. smart sure. people than myself, right? You're on the ground, um, so what are you hearing on the ground? Is, the, is there wiggle room in these gonna, rules, or are these rules going to be? These rules are going to stand. I would love to be wrong. Um, they're going to come out. Uh, then um, it becomes an issue for Congress uh, and appropriations. And do they start? Are there things that happen around appropriations? Uh, there, and put it this way: the Congress can react to this uh, and can make it clear that this is not something that they want to see happening. And there's money attached to appropriations to the department, for example, uh, and to different um, programs that the department may like. So there's politics that starts to kick into this um, pretty quickly. What's interesting, I have to repeat this. This is not just a Republican. Um, the Republicans are saying, hey, we don't want to see these rules. And Democrats are saying we're all in. There are um, members of the Democratic um, Senate caucus here that don't support these rules as well. Governor Jared Polis, a Democrat in um, Colorado, Colorado. Uh, does not support these um, rules as well. And there are other uh, Democrats in um, the House and the Senate and, and governors and Michael Bloomberg in New York who don't support these rules. This is not just a Democrat Republican thing. This is a charter school community, which has been pretty diverse over the last 25 plus years. 
um, saying this is not necessary. This adds additional costs. Why are you doing it? Let me shift closer to home um, because we saw something at the state board last week that is very unusual. The state board upheld a decision to close a charter school and another choice virtual charter school. You, you were there when they uh, when they made yes. that vote. What's your reaction to that decision? This is how it's supposed to work. Charter schools are not you. You open it and you're guaranteed to allow it to run forever. That's that's what charter school advocates have been saying. Traditional districts, whether they're the schools are working or not, they just keep going and going and going and doing what they do. Charter schools are supposed to be different in that if they don't perform over time, uh, you know, they're given the opportunity to to make change and improvements. But if they're not able to do so, then they should close. That's part of the charter school bargain going back to the very beginning of the origins of, of charter schools in the in the late um, 90s. Uh, and so that is a belief that I also share. Um, and I think Idaho has uh, it probably not been as hard nosed on um, school closures as many other charter school states have. Uh, so, you know, I support the, the, the decision of the state board. Uh, and, you know, just make sure you're fair in the metrics, you're fair in how you determine. And it's pretty, usually it comes down to the economics of the school. Can the school sustain itself financially um, and deliver for students and most school closures, not only in Idaho, and I think we've had probably up to a dozen now, um, maybe more over the years, but it's something like that. Uh, but also across the country, it's, it's the fact is that you get a school that opens and in time, it's just simply not able to make its economics work. And usually that's because it doesn't get the enrollment that it needs. Um, charter schools are enrollment driven. If you get the enrollment, you get the dollars, you're able to make the school work. If you don't get enrollment in time, um, you've got to start to make cuts. And in time, those cuts probably affect enrollment more. Right. And becomes a vicious cycle. Spi- death spiral, right? Um, and so the uh, you, at that point, you have a responsibility as the state. The state has a responsibility to say enough is enough. Um, we're no longer going to allow uh, public dollars to flow to your school, and um, we're going to close it. Now, there's always pain associated with this. There's always families that um, get that this is their school. They don't want to see it close. Uh, I've been involved and um, I was an authorizer in Ohio and the, hard, the hardest thing I ever did in my life was actually be involved in closing a school that parents valued, um, but it just simply did not have the enrollment. It simply did not have a budget that could work um, and it wasn't able to deliver for families and kids um, at the level that uh, the state should expect. And so the problem is with it. That's a long answer. Well, and the problem is with another choice. It wasn't just a uh, question of finding a market niche. Possibly with that, that's an even easier choice to make, right? And, and um, some fairly lackluster performance academically yep. as well. Yep. You've had concerns about the virtual schools, some of the virtual schools, the virtual sector. Um, what's your position about virtual charters now? Uh, two years into the pandemic, where obviously they served a, a surge of students in the heart of the pandemic. Enrollment declined fairly precipitously for the virtuals last year. How do they fit into the mix? So, I mean, virtual schools 
God, I think the first one's open in 99. So we've got a lot of like evidence and we've seen a lot of um, sort of what works and what doesn't. There are no doubt families um, in Idaho and across the country that uh, benefit from being able to access virtual education. Um, and inevitably it's because there's an adult at home with the student or students um, and helping them uh, take advantage of the opportunities that the virtual platforms provide. Um, but it's definitely, I think, clear, and I think the pandemic made it even clearer, that many of our students do also need direct instruction. They actually benefit from being in a classroom. Mm -hmm. They actually benefit from having classmates and having those conversations with their classmates and with a real um, uh, teacher. Uh, you know, I think you're seeing an evolution here where you're gonna see students and, and we've got some charter schools that are doing, I think some pretty innovative things on this, where it may be you're in the morning, you're in a classroom with um, a, a teacher and then in the afternoon, you're learning virtually online. Uh, and there's kind of a, a, a lot of different um, opportunities that, that uh, emerge here. But this idea of you're going to be completely enrolled um, uh, virtually uh, at home, um, I, I don't think works for uh, large numbers of our students. Um, and it's, it's not a it's, it's I think it's more a reflection of what we know about how kids learn than it is a criticism of online um, education. And honestly, God, I'm gonna say it again, it's the, it's the mixing of the place-based learning and um, uh, school-based setting where uh, you're with adults and you're with other students. There's also the socialization aspects that kick in here. Um, and I think, again, COVID exposed that, uh, that, that students actually benefit by being with other students, learning rules. Um, being able to compromise with other mm -hmm. students, being able to hear no and, and, and have to live with it because of other students around them and group decision-making and those sorts of things. So um, I think that the pandemic has actually been pretty enlightening and that, yeah, there's always gonna be a role and probably even an expanding role for learning and communicating as you and I are right now. Um, but there's always going to also be an important role for bringing young people together, having them um, share a classroom-based experience, uh, and, and having FaceTime real-time with um, teachers. Uh, and so that is how I think we're seeing this shake out um, more and more. Um, so I hope I answered your question. No, you did. And it raises another question that I did want to get to, and you touched on it even earlier, enrollment and how enrollment drives the charter sector. We saw a decline in overall charter enrollment last year for, for the first time, and I know that was mostly a result of what was going on in the virtual charter schools. But in your view, what's the overall state of demand for charter schools statewide? Well... There's demand for charter schools in certain communities in the state. Uh, I mean, you know this stuff, but you look at the, the demographics and, and we have certain parts of our state that are adding 
um, families uh, rapidly. That's West Ada. Um, I think somebody told me, I might have heard this at the state board, that they have a 120% occupancy rate, meaning that there's a hundred and if you, if you wanted a hundred kids in the school, there's 120, I think is what that means. Right. Uh, and so, you know, I can tell you that the charter schools in places like West Ada, um, and out in Middleton and in um, some of the communities in eastern Idaho have served as almost like safety valves for um, uh, our student uh, population and providing classroom space. That's not why we do this work. We do this work so that these schools can do some things differently and innovatively, mm-hmm. but there has been enrollment and the vast majority of the charter schools we've worked with um, have either met their enrollment targets and or have um, student wait lists. Uh, I think there was a study, well, we did a study, but I, I saw, uh, I know West Ada does a lot of their own um, work on this, um, along the lines of that in uh, the Treasure Valley, we're going to have the need for 40 more elementary schools between now and 2030. Um, I think the charter schools have a role to play in helping to meet that. Uh, yeah, you know, if it's if that number's right, uh, say there needs to be 100 elementary schools, if the charters could, could help with 20 of them, um, I think that could be a really valuable contribution to the, the overall effort here. Um, answer to your question is there are certain parts of the state where the student population and, and, the, and the numbers that we look at from U.S. from the U.S. Census and from builders and everywhere else is that we're going to need to keep building um, schools. There are that's one that's interesting to me is the Boise School District where you're seeing basically a flat line in student enrollment. And that's mm-hmm. not because you've got a bunch of kids that are going off to charter schools. That's because you've got um, people that are buying houses that in the past you'd have families um, mm-hmm. are now retirees from California or elsewhere, right? Yes, yeah, it's just a different um, community so, demographic. Sure. Go ahead. Yeah, it's, right. There's changing demographics. And it's interesting. One of the stories that has been interesting to me is a charter school that we helped out called Future Public School in Garden City. And it was by design, it was going to be diverse. Um, and that the, the population in that area was um, the most diverse population, student population that we have in the state. And the school reflected that 60, 65% of the students that were pre reduced price lunch, if I'm remembering. Um, and I think they had eight, nine, 10 different languages being spoken in the school. Well, since that school's open, that area has seen a boom in the construction of apartments um, that are kind of costly. And so you're seeing a dispersal of uh, the student population. And so the school's actually worried it's not going to be able to, to maintain its mission of serving a really diverse student population and a needier student population because families are, are going to be so far out that they're not going to be able to get to the school. Um, so it's, it's just interesting how fast that's kind of flipped. Um, but the growth in Idaho is, you know, I mean, it's, it's rapid um, and it is uh, not consistent across the whole state. Um, it's in the northern part of the state. Uh, up in Post Falls not long ago, you just see apartments everywhere popping up. Um, and of course, it's in the Treasure Valley and it's in um, parts of, of eastern Idaho as well. So I think there's going to be demand for new school seats and either they can be built by the charters or they can be built by the districts, but they're going to have to be built. Um, I think there are other parts of the state where you're just going to want a different school option that doesn't currently exist. I'm thinking CTE. 
there's a great CTE school called Elevate in Caldwell. They're opening a school um, in August in Nampa, another one up north. Um, uh, I think they have plans to do a school in 2024, 2025 in Idaho Falls. I know there are communities that are reaching out to them and saying, we want you in our community. Mayors are reaching out to them. Members of the legislature are reaching out to them. Um, there's another model, the Barney Charter School Initiative model. You can see it in action in Fruitland. Uh, and it's a model that also there are different communities saying, we really value the rigor um, of, the, of the classical academy uh, education that you're providing. And we would like something like that in our community as well. So um, there's the demand driven by sort of a growing population, but there's also demand driven by people in communities saying, uh, we want something different for our students. It's not that we don't like what we've got here, it's that we need something um, in addition to what we've got. A last question, and I feel like we're all gonna pile up some frequent flyer miles here because we're gonna go from DC issues to Idaho issues. But I have to ask you, you spent some time this spring in Poland, and I know you've worked there. You used, you know, that was earlier in your career, you worked there. You were there observing What's happening in the schools in Poland as, as they are dealing with this influx of students, refugee students from Ukraine? Is there anything we can draw from that? I mean, obviously, the, the issues we're dealing with, the problems we're dealing with are trivial compared to invasion and genocide. But is there anything we can learn from what is happening there, that what the schools are having to cope with there, that apply to anything that we're dealing with here closer to home? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, we need to love and respect our educators, Kevin, um, because they deal with really tough issues that come their way that you would never imagine coming your way. COVID is an example, mm -hmm. um, but, you know, death of a student, um, the, you know, so I think that the thing that I was so greatly impressed by when when I spent time in schools and one the resilience of the students, the how they come together and how they support one another is unbelievable. Um, and you see it in our schools, you see it in sports teams, you see it, you see it all over. Um, but the teachers uh, staying true to the mission. Um, doing, knowing they're not doing enough, but doing the best they can to serve their students, to serve um, the families, uh, to, to, they're also problem solvers. Uh, and we see it, I see it in Idaho all the time where students will show up with a problem and it's the teacher who first notices something's not quite right. Um, and it's the teacher who might start asking some questions and, and start saying, you know, maybe there's something going on here. Uh, and it opens doors that uh, can result in supports for, um, for uh, uh, young people. So um, what I have taken from all of this is, is that education is a noble occupation. Um, it is something that we should all respect um, and we don't, always do so 
uh, and that most of the educators I know in Idaho or anywhere else I've ever been have gotten into education, not because they're in it for the money or not because they're in it for, you know, the summer vacations. They're in it because they love kids. Um, they, they love their country. Uh, and they want to serve. And I think we need to respect that and, and we it, need it, to appreciate it, that. And it shouldn't take the duress of war for us to appreciate what teachers are doing on the ground pandemics, for kids. It right. shouldn't, you know. Um, these are tough times, though, you know. I mean, uh, I'm impressed by adults who, who give freely of themselves for um, children and for others. And um, great teachers do that every day. It's a great place to leave it. We covered a lot of landscape today. Terry, appreciate the time. Thank you, Kevin. Again, that was Terry I... Ryan, the CEO of Bloom. If you want to find out more about the topics that we discussed in this week's interview, go to idahoheadnews.org. Our friends at Chalkbeat have a story breaking down Tuesday's Supreme Court ruling. We have a story looking at these Biden administration rules that would affect uh, federal grants uh, for charter school startups. Devin Bodkin wrote that story a few days ago. And this week he did a story because we were curious about exactly how does the state go about closing a charter school? What's the process here? He has a story explaining all of that. Also at idahoednews.org, we have a lot of news on the higher ed front. I look at how inflation is affecting college campuses and how that might affect a tuition freeze that's been on the books now for three years. I take a long look at some long-term trends in demographics and how that might affect college enrollment and the competition to bring college students onto campuses. And North Idaho College has a new president. It was a divided vote, but they did hire a president on Wednesday. We have that story also at idahoednews.org. Follow us on the homepage for the latest in education policy and education politics. Follow us on Twitter at idahoednews. We tweet out links to our latest stories and bulletins on breaking news. Follow us on Facebook and comment on our stories there and check back for the podcast. We will take next week off as far as the podcast is concerned because of the 4th of July holiday, but we should be back in two weeks with another edition of the podcast. Stay tuned for details. Until then, I'm Kevin Richard. Have a good 4th of July holiday and stay safe. And we will be talking to you in eh, probably about two weeks. Bye.